Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for today's Practice Journeys podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members share their career journey, highlighting notable aha moments along the way. My name is Melanie Smith, and I am the director of the ASHP section of Ambulatory Care Practitioners. I will be your host for today's podcast. With me today is Jessica Skelly, the 2020-21 Chair of the ASHP Section of Ambulatory Care Practitioners and Associate Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Stanford University McWhorter School of Pharmacy. Thank you for joining me today, Jessica. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to get to talk with you today. Of course, of course. So let's get started by talking about today's topic, ASHP Women in Pharmacy Leadership, Ambulatory Care practice, and career journey. So to start off, why don't you just give us a little bit of background about your current practice site and your professional responsibilities? Sure. So like most pharmacists, I sometimes feel like I have a hundred different jobs. I'm an ambulatory care pharmacist at Christ Health Center in Birmingham, Alabama, where I also am on faculty for the medical residency program at the clinic. So there I precept fourth year pharmacy students, medical residents, occasionally some medical students, uh, PGY1 pharmacy residents for their ambulatory care elective. And then most recently, I have become the primary preceptor as of two months ago uh, for two PGY2 ambulatory care residents who are now completing their residency program at my clinic due to COVID issues at their previous practice. I'm also on faculty at Samford University, which is also in Birmingham, Alabama. There, I'm an associate professor and teach in and coordinate a couple of different courses. I run our school's postgraduate mentoring program for students that are interested in residency training. And of course, I'm a member of various committees and task forces at the School of Pharmacy also. Very cool. So no day is ever the same. No, and it's not, which is one of the things that I love about my job is always getting to do and build and participate in new things. But it definitely uh, is a little bit of schizophrenia sometimes of running from one place to another. So was pharmacy, specifically ambulatory care practice, something that you were always interested in? And if so, or if not, how did you decide ambulatory care was the right practice setting for you? Yeah, so one of the reasons that I went into pharmacy was because I really wanted an opportunity to care for people. My core interest was always helping people and communicating with people. I originally wanted to be an English teacher when I was in high school because I loved having the opportunity to communicate with people, whether verbally or through written communication. And so there was a lot about medicine that connected with me. But once I found myself in pharmacy school, I really struggled to identify where my kind of pharmacy home would be. Because again, I wanted to help people, but also to be able to communicate with them. So in the hospital setting, I could be helpful, but I often didn't get to develop relationships with the patients themselves due to their acuity or patient turnover. But I really loved and valued being a part of the medical team. And then in the community pharmacy setting, I was able to have those relationships with patients and to communicate with them and engage with them, but really found myself struggling with the loss of the team, working alongside our other healthcare colleagues. And it was really frustrating to constantly have to be reactive to problems that reached us from the prescriber rather than being able to be proactive. It wasn't really until my fourth year of pharmacy school that I even knew ambulatory care was a thing, unfortunately. Um, but once I did, I, I never turned back from that. So there were things that I really deeply loved about both community pharmacy and inpatient pharmacy and really in ambulatory care I was able to have them both. So that's something that I'm so profoundly grateful for every day I get to go to work. 
Yeah, your journey sounds a little bit like mine. I did not discover what Amcare practice was until on rotation. So I yeah. completely get that. It's such a shame. <laughs> I wish that we did a better job of advocating for our area of the profession and exposing students to it at an earlier time. So switching gears just a little bit, we've all had those moments in our life or even through our practice journey that have helped define us as a person and shape the impact that we want to have on the profession of pharmacy with our patients and our learners. So can you describe what I'd like to call one of your aha moments and was it something expected and how did you respond to it? That's a great question. Interestingly enough, all of my aha moments that I think of have actually come not necessarily from patient care experiences, but they've come from engaging with teachers or mentors of mine. I think most people can probably think back to a teacher who was a significant influence in their lives. So I don't know, maybe that was one of the driving forces for me deciding to become an educator myself. But I could think of probably two different moments that stand out, and both of them actually involve people helping to inspire me to take risks. So I'm a three on the Enneagram. I don't know if you're familiar with the Enneagram and different personality types. Is that something that you know much about, Melanie? No. So now you have to explain what that is. Yeah. So it gives nine different um, personality types. And I heard someone jokingly say the other day that the Enneagram is not something that people usually enjoy learning much about because unlike strength finders where it's like, oh, I, I would love to find out what my strengths are. The Enneagram really tells you general things about your personality type, but it also tells you when you're at your best what that looks like, but also when you're at your worst, when you're insecure and not functioning well, what that looks like too. And it can be really hard to read sometimes, but really accurate. So I'm a three on the Enneagram, which is the achiever type of person. So that means that I'm extremely driven, but I'm also extremely risk averse because I don't want to fail. I only want to exceed. And that's something that I've learned about myself over time. So those tendencies are now easier to manage because of course, with self-awareness comes power, but it really used to be a significant issue for me. So when I actually first thought about applying for this role with ASHP, I was really kind of split on the opportunity because I was pretty sure that I would not win the election because a lot of people don't on their first try. And for me, again, that fear of failure was really getting in the way. I thought, why would I want to do something that I know I'm not going to be successful at? And so I happened to be talking about it one day to my dean, Michael Crouch, and he said, so most people fail their first time in an election like this. And I said, yeah, so I, I just don't know if I should do that. And he looked at me and he very matter of factly said, well, what are you waiting for? Go ahead and get it out of the way, fill faster so that you can get to the step where you succeed. And I think that for me, reframing failure that way, thinking it not as the end of a process, but as a natural step of a process toward being successful, that was really empowering for me. And it helped make that fear of failure in my life much more manageable and approachable. So that's one thing that came to mind that really changed my perspective and how I interacted with others, how I interacted with my role, how I wanted to mentor and pour into people below me as well that were learners. The second one that I can think of is when I became involved with ASHP way back when in the section advisory group structure of our section, I joined my first SAG as a new practitioner and I really tried to do a great job and took initiative and volunteered for things. And the person who was the vice chair the SAG at the time, Starlin Hayden Greeting, she took notice of that. I know you know Starlin. Of course, um, she, everybody knows Starlin. Everybody knows Starlin. <laughs> and so she reached out to me at one point toward the end of the year because she was going to be chair the next year. And she said, why don't you apply for vice chair next year? I think you do a great job. And that 
interaction was really important for me for, I think, two reasons. Um, first, taking a risk like that, again, for me was really unimaginable because I was surprised I even got appointed to a SAG. <laughs> so I didn't think I had any business, you know, stepping into a leadership role. I didn't feel qualified. I didn't feel experienced, but she believed in me and kind of almost strong-armed me into applying <laughs> and taking on that role. I know that sounds completely unlike Starlin. She Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> she, she believes everyone in the opportunity. But I learned the power of believing in someone more than they believe in themselves. And the other thing that Starlin taught me, and it's honestly sad that I had to learn this lesson so late in life, was the power of women supporting other women. And of course, I had female friends and female colleagues, but there had always been that undercurrent of competitiveness in that unfortunate perception that there wasn't enough space for all of us to simultaneously succeed. And I didn't know how to advocate for and sponsor another woman myself because I didn't even know what that looked like. Mm. I never had that done for me. I'd never seen that done in my workplace for someone else. And so I'd never really had that transformative experience of a role model who looks at you not as a direct compete, but as an opportunity to develop and nurture and mentor someone. And that's how Starlin treated me. She would force me to network. She would introduce me to people. She would nominate me for opportunities, contact me about leadership positions and try to get me to apply. And that really, for me, changed how I thought about mentorship, how I engage with my learners and especially my female learners who need to have that practical demonstration of what it looks like to sponsor and advocate for another person. That sounds really great. So just listening to what you're saying, it sounded like you needed the push to make you move when you maybe felt stagnant or scared. And now it sounds like you are giving back to your new residents. Um, Absolutely. And here's a fun fact. Dr. Crouch was one of my pharmacy school professors. So I love to hear (laughs) that he was pivotal in your decision to apply to be a part of the section. Pharmacy is such a small world. (laughs) Small world. Okay, so shifting gears just a little bit, the last six or seven months have been transformational, to say the least, in regards to the global pandemic and also concerns surrounding social justice. So how have you responded to the changes that needed to be made or have been implemented both in practice and at home? And what have you learned about yourself, your colleagues, and your family? Man, we got some heavy questions going on here. (laughs) So, okay. So thinking about well-being and resilience, because that is a big topic that a lot of people have been talking about lately and something that's really important in the context of COVID. Again, with someone who is a high achiever person and I take my job very seriously, and if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it all the way and I'm going to do it right. I always find myself really committed to my professional responsibilities and obligations. And so it's hard sometimes to disengage from those roles in my life because it's such a big part of who I am. So I think that one of the things that I've been trying to focus on during the COVID pandemic experience is to try and continually remind myself and recognize that there are many, many people that can do my job, but there aren't many people that can be a mom to my girls or a good partner to my spouse or a daughter for my parents. And it's really hard, I think, being in healthcare to disassociate yourself from your job because for so many of us, we see it as a calling. But at the end of the day, it's important to remember that's not all of who we are as people. And it's a job and it doesn't care about you nearly as much as you care about it. 
and it won't miss you as much as you think it will. I know that people want to think that they leave and they'll be missed so deeply and they might for a couple of days and then they'll be replaced by another person. So we're often much more loyal to those roles than they are to us, but we are important to our families. We're not replaceable to them. So we really need to focus on those roles that were the one in a million person for and not let them be what is expendable. Um, so that for me is something that I've really tried to refocus and reframe on during COVID to help with well-being and resilience. Definitely. So it sounds like you have reinstituted or reinforced some boundaries that maybe you didn't have in place prior to this happening. Yes. And I, I think that's probably true for a lot of people because it's been almost this forced slowdown. Yes. <laughs> and and when you asked about that like aha moment experience during a pandemic, I think one of the things that I've been trying to reflect on really intentionally is the difference between achievement and fulfillment. And mm. for me, those, those things have been simultaneous. You know, I'm fulfilled when I achieve because I'm, again, the achiever type on the Enneagram. If everything in life is a competition and I'm going to win and I'm not playing for the love of the game, I'm playing for the love of the victory. You know? Right. So I I want to win. I want to be the best and push myself harder and do those types of things. And so I've always appreciated my own work ethic and being successful itself, I think, has inherently been associated with fulfillment for me. But with COVID and the world kind of grinding to a halt, my typical opportunities for achievement and affirmation froze also. So that regular affirmation of doing my work well, of receiving informal or formal encouragement about something that I've done, those are things that usually kind of drive me and are things that I thrive on. But honestly, everything sucked for a while. Yeah. (laughs) Like I wasn't getting anything. (laughs) I was terrible at homeschooling my kids, like terrible at it. I couldn't figure out how to effectively manage workload with kids at home. I couldn't get technology to work for telehealth visits with patients. So everything was harder. It took longer. And I was really struggling from that, like so many people. And so I think when all of this happened, I quickly realized how temporary achievements are. They're not sustained. And it's it's not the same thing as fulfillment because being fulfilled is an ongoing process. It's things like joy or friendship or a sense of purpose. And those qualities come from things that are much more long-term in your life than an achievement or a project or a role. So I think trying to refocus my desire for fulfillment on the right authentic places lately has been really powerful for me. So I I don't know what makes you feel fulfilled, Melanie, but for me, I feel fulfilled when I'm a good friend or a good mom or a good wife. And at work, when I'm able to be in roles where I mentor students and residents and help them find their purpose and passion, or at the clinic, when I'm able to build systems at work that provide better care for patients. And the achievements are great too. So don't, don't get me wrong. I still love them, but I've really come to see an honor them for what they are, which is just this temporary feeling of satisfaction, but they aren't my only purpose or driver anymore. Right. I think for you, again, listening to what you're saying and thinking about some of my own experiences during the last six or seven months, it's really a a shift in perspective on what's important and how you want to spend your time Yeah. in regards to fulfillment and also enjoyment. Mm Mm-hmm. So just a little bit of a sidebar, you kind of mentioned homeschooling your kids and much of everything that we're doing is virtual these days. So how are you maintaining balance between, like you said, telehealth and virtual schooling and online workouts and looking at your phone, anything that you've done that could be helpful for others? 
<laughs> balance is gone. Balance doesn't exist anymore. It's more of an integration opportunity, I think, for us. I think recognizing and being able to prioritize needs from everyone in my life has been really important. And that, again, it's really hard for me sometimes to be able to do, but to recognize that sometimes it's okay for that triage experience to say this specific situation at work is what needs to take priority in this instance. And that's temporary. That's not permanent. It's something that might be for a short couple of hours where I have to tell my girls, you know what, we can't do this right now or that right now, but that time is going to come also. And then also being able to relegate work to its appropriate place when there are things with my kids that do need to take a priority, but also just trying to release some of the pressure for perfection on myself, because some of these roles that many of us have taken on during this time, they aren't roles that we should expect ourselves to be thriving in and doing well in. And I think I thought because I am an educator and I teach pharmacy school to adults about very complex topics and pharmacotherapy and all of these other types of things that of course it would be easy to teach my kindergartner how to read guess what? It's not. It's not easy. I'm not doing it well. And so then trying to figure out how we accommodate for that and who else we can bring into our team who can help with that. What are things that my husband might be the better person to do because he might be more patient or more uh, encouraging or more nurturing? I know sometimes we think of us as women always needing to fulfill those roles, but that isn't necessarily the case. And we have the ability and the threshold to be able to do that in our lives. Or like we had to hire a tutor recently for my kindergartner because she's definitely slowly at surely slipping behind and where she needs to be in kindergarten. And I'm so grateful to be able to do that and bring someone in who that is their skill set and they are good at that. But also recognizing for the people that are out there that don't have that threshold in their lives. They don't have the capacity financially, personnel wise, maybe they're a single parent and they don't have a partner you've got to be able to triage in your life of what the have to be able to do and have to honor commitments are. And then the things that it's okay to step back from and say, you know, this is going to be messy and it's not going to look good. And it's probably not going to be my best work, but that's okay. Cause I showed up and I tried and I did my best. Oh, exactly. Not everything has to be perfect. So I know that I've had to learn that myself. <laughs> it's a hard lesson. It's very hard for us type A pharmacists. Yes, it is. <laughs> so our last question is looking ahead. So in your opinion, what does the future of the profession, specifically ambulatory care practice, looks like? And how much, if any, of what we've experienced in the last few months should be implemented as we move forward? So things that... I think our highs and lows that we've experienced and learned that we would be able to take forward. I personally have learned how adaptable and creative my team is in ways that I didn't expect and how adaptable and flexible I can be, which is something I never would have said prior to COVID that was a strength of mine, but I'm learning to find that within myself. That's something that I would like to carry forward. So in under six weeks, we had to take on two new PGY2 residents. We had to create a residency program for them. We also created two new services and had them up and running. And that took a Herculean amount of effort and creativity to do that from so many different team members at our practice, from front office staff to our MAs, to our physicians, and everyone 
and had such great ideas and a willingness to try new things. And when those things didn't work, to then tweak them and try them again until we landed on something that did. And so I think being forced out of our typical practice and having to figure out how to do new things in a new way, that actually has been really healthy for us as an organization. And that's something that I I would like to see carried forward from COVID that has been a great lesson personally. I agree. I think we've all, for the most part, have been forced to break out of our comfort zone and our normal routine and be much more creative. And that proves our resilience and our ability to to think on the fly. So I totally hope that we keep that going as we move into the future. So that is all of the time we have today. I do want to thank you, Jessica, for joining me to discuss our podcast, ASHP Women in Pharmacy Leadership ambulatory care practice and career journey. Thank you for sharing both your personal and professional perspectives. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.